We are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, hello listeners. We are continuing our journey through Hebrews by going over chapter 9. If you've been with us for the last several chapters, or if you've been joining us through the entire book of Hebrews, um, or if this is your first time, welcome and welcome back. Um, In the last few chapters, the author of Hebrews has kind of been setting this precedence that we're going to, we're going to touch on again. And so some of this is stuff I've already covered. I've already gone over, uh, like more than a handful of verses to try to show you what the author is trying to show us, um, specifically in chapter six and seven and eight, in which I talked about at length that, um, God has bypassed that which was physical in order to establish that which is spiritual. And we're going to find that exact same concept here in chapter 9. So there's going to be some things that I'm not going to go as in-depth as I have in the previous one. So I'm going to encourage you, go back and listen to those if you want to know more about what I'm talking about. But the reality is, is really starting in 7 primarily with Melchizedek and going into chapter 8 um, and coming now into 9... The author is establishing this, that the first covenant was a physical copy of something that was to be spiritually revealed in Christ. And now that Christ has come, now that this spiritual revelation has taken place and he has now uh, moved from the shadow onto the substance, from the copy of the pattern of the first regulation of the first covenant, um, those things established under it, and he is now transferred through Christ into the spiritual reality of those things, The old has now been made obsolete. It's no longer needed for those who come into Christ. It's no longer established for those who are coming into Christ. It's no longer the covenant that we live by because the physical has now been bypassed in order to establish the spiritual. And we're going to find that even in chapter 9. The very first verse, he says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Now, what he's doing is he's piggybacking off of the theme of how he ended chapter 8, in which God has said, I'm going to make this covenant with the house of Israel, understanding that the church is now the Israel of God. We are the heavenly Jerusalem. We are the ones who are in Christ as the church, where there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, as Romans um, uh, chapter 10 talks about. There's no distinction in Christ. As Ephesians 2 even talks about, there's no distinction for those who are in Christ. We are the church of God. We are the Israel of God. We are the spiritual reality of what was in the physical people of God under the old covenant. We are now the church, the the representatives of Christ on this earth, the ambassadors for him. 
And it's no longer about Jew or Gentile. The Jews are no longer his people. It's one of those hot topics for me that is, is a, a fresh thing for me that I'm kind of dealing with with some people. Um, and and it's, it's a frustrating thing for me because the Jews have been forsaken. And if you don't believe me, go read the end of Luke chapter 13. Go read Romans 11 where a copto, it means that they were cut off as a branch from a trunk. They are no longer part of the trunk. They can be if they come in through Christ. God is willing to forgive all that they've done, all the abuse that they did to him under that old covenant. He is willing to forgive it if they would pledge their allegiance to Christ as Lord of their life and believing in him as the Christ and the Messiah. Um, but if they don't do that, they are on the outside looking in. They are not God's people. They have been rejected. That is literally what the word teaches. They will receive an acceptance, but only if they come through Christ. And so this concept of this first, this first covenant, even that had regulations for worship. So we can't say that now we come into this new covenant, there's no regulations. There's no law. There's no standard that we have to live by. We have a standard. His name is Jesus Christ. And he gives us our commands that we are to live by. So the, the teaching that's out there that's like, no, we're under grace, not under law. You're right. We are under grace, not under the law of Moses. But you still are under law. This is why it says in, the, in Matthew 7 that people are going to come to him in the last days and at the, or on that last day. And they're going to say, um, Lord, Lord. Right? And he's going to say, I didn't know you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He said, you didn't live under the standard. Even in the end, in 2 Peter chapter 3, towards the end, he says there's things that people are going to twist to their own destruction in the scriptures. And he goes on and he says, so you make sure that you're not carried away with the air of lawless people. We still have a standard. We still have regulations. We still have a method of worship. But it's not one that is under the old covenant that God made with the Jews at Mount Sinai. It is now the one that God makes with his church through Jesus Christ. I, I, primarily the one that he makes with Christ that we come into. And so on this one, he says, there, even under the first covenant, there was regulations for worship, an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, as according to the law, the first section in which the, the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence is called the holy place. Essentially, in this temple that was um, orchestrated for God, there was this first section that God ordered, and he said, look, in this first section is going to be this lampstand in which there's, you know, you might have heard it referenced as the menorah. There's this branch that, that stems from the, I'm not a, a branch, this trunk that stems up in the center. And then you have these branches that come off of it. And those branches get their light from the trunk, from the source of the trunk. Uh, the branches themselves did not have the light. It was they were fed the light from the trunk. And this all has a picture, which is why I'm explaining it to this table of the presence. It was something that was carved out of acacia wood, which means sticks of wood. And I could go back in Joshua and I could show you how the people came for Shatim, which is the place that means sticks of wood or acacia. Um, and, and there's this concept of these people came into uh, the promised land through Joshua or through Yeshua. They crossed over the Jordan, which means the descender, and they came into that which was promised for them an inheritance in which they would have dominion and inheritance they had authority and as long as they obeyed God and did what he asked them to do they would have dominion over everything in that land 
And they came from the place of Shittim, which means sticks of wood. Now, if you are a Bible scholar or if your eyes have been open to the spiritual realities of what the old portrays for the new, you'll understand that when we come from the place of the cross or sticks of wood, that we understand that we come into what God has promised for us, that God has given us the inheritance, that God has given us dominion to exercise in its authority as ambassadors of Christ. And I'm not going to go super into what all that translates to. However, I will want you to understand that God has now bypassed the physical to establish the spiritual. And even under the physical, they had regulations, they had law, they had a standard that they had to live by. And in this first section which is representative of the flesh of Christ. Um, You have this table of the presence, in which the bread of the presence was to be offered at all times for the priesthood to be able to partake of. It was never to be stale, never to be old. It was constantly rotated to be fresh and offered as sustenance for the priesthood. And what's interesting is that you look at it, that, that bread of the presence can be translated as the bread of the panaim. And the panaim is the light of day or the, the, the light of God's face upon our, upon, or the light of God upon our face. It can also be translated as the bread of the face. And so when you look at this and you go into the New Testament, you realize that Jesus says, I was the bread that came from heaven. And he was born in Jerusalem, which means the house of bread. This is the one who came from heaven to bring about the, the, the spiritual bread for us that we would partake of. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. Right, And I know that I'm I'm piecing a whole lot of stuff and I'm jumbling it all together for you. But I'm trying to give you a picture that Christ is that bread. And he is always offered for us as the spiritual priesthood to partake of whenever we need it. He's always fresh. It's always new. It's always good. That's why it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And so you have this table of the bread in which supported the bread of heaven, if you will. And, and, and that bread or that table, you could talk about as being an illustration or a parabolic type way of looking at it of the cross. The, the, the sticks of wood of Acacia that was supporting the bread of heaven. For us to be able to partake of. This lampstand, when John 15 talks about it, he says, You are the branch, I am the vine, I'm the trunk, you're the way that I get, you are the way, I'm sorry, I am the way that you get light. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The branch must abide in that trunk or in that vine. And so these are um, indicative of examples of Christ, but they're the physical examples. That was pointing to something else. It was a shadow pointing to the substance as Colossians puts it. And I cannot stress it enough as to how important this is. Because we don't go back to the copies. We don't go back to the shadows. We have received Christ. So this isn't something which he's stating. No, 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 no. Now you need to set these things up still. You need to have an earthly temple in which these things are there. He says you've already received them in Christ. Their job was to point to Christ. And once you come into him, their job has been fulfilled. You don't need to go back and have a menorah. You need to, you don't need to go back and make a table um you know, uh, what does he say? A table and then the bread of the presence. You don't need to go and establish those things anymore. Those regulations that were under the first covenant that's now been made obsolete as chapter 8:13 says. He says you have received them and their job was to point to Christ and now that you've come into Christ, their job is fulfilled. He goes on and he says, behind the second curtain, 
was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, which we already addressed, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant above it that were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Essentially, the second, co- the second place was still a greater example of Christ. And I'm going to identify that just briefly when I look at this. You look at the manna we already talked about. Jesus says that he was, he is the spiritual manna. He is the bread that's come from heaven. Aaron's staff that budded represented Aaron as having the priesthood um, among some other things. But primarily it's going to show that Aaron was the priesthood. And then you also had the tablet, which was the word of God that was given to the people through Moses in order to establish it on this earth. All three of those things are fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the spiritual bread that came from heaven. Christ is the high priest in which we serve under, under in the royal priesthood, the spiritual Jerusalem. And he's also the word of God that was given to the people to establish the covenant with them. And so the, the thing is, in all these things, Jesus has been or is fulfilling and has fulfilled every single one of them. You're like, well, what about the mercy seat? This Ark of the Covenant, which had those three elements inside of it, on top of it was the mercy seat, in which you had a cherubim on either side. And here's the crazy thing. If I remember, it's in John 19 or John 20, somewhere in there. Um, Maybe it's even John 21. Uh, But somewhere in there, you're going to recognize the story when Jesus was put in the tomb. Right, And the day that he resurrected, they came and the stone was rolled away. They found it rolled away. They walked inside and depending on the account that you're looking at, and I believe the one I'm thinking of is in John, it says that they found an angel sitting on the left where the feet were and an angel sitting on the right. And they're, they're sitting on this place with so a cherubim on the left and a cherubim on the right where the body of Christ laid. And Christ has fulfilled even the mercy seat because of what he accomplished through the cross and his resurrection. He says these preparations in verse 6, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing the ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now that's an interesting statement. That if you study through the law, you would realize there's a difference between unintentional and intentional sin. You have the transgressions, which are the rebellions, which are the intentional ones, as he's going to address in, in Hebrews chapter 10, that even in the new covenant that we have, if you're going to give intentional sins, his blood does not cover that. And listen to me very closely. If you need to go look at it, go look in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, where he says, if we, the author includes himself as part of the church, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. He says, his blood doesn't cover that. It covers the unintentional ones, like James 4.17 says, that the one who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. If you didn't realize that it was a sin, I believe his blood covers that. His mercy covers that. But if you knew something to be sin and you walked in that, his blood is not going to cover that. And I'm going to argue and say, until you would repent and confess that, 
Because in 1 John 1.9 it says that if we, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. That's all present tense, not past tense. If we confessed our sins, He was faithful to forgive us of those sins. That's not what the author is saying. John is simply stating present tense, we currently, right now, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the blood of Christ can cover it, but it doesn't automatically cover it unless you confess and repent. That's even under the New Covenant. And a lot of people don't want to accept that one because they have this ideology built in that's been taught to them that when we came into Christ, all past, present, future sins were forgiven. And that's just not the case. He was the propitiation for our sins that were committed previously to coming to know Him. But moving forward from that point of salvation, you will be accountable for sin. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, each of us to give an account for what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. So this concept of unintentional sins actually carries over to the New Testament that the priest goes in to offer sacrifice for the unintentional sins of the people so that they can be covered. The ones that people did in the times of their ignorance, God overlooked. He was willing to overlook your ignorance. And when you come into that blood of Christ, you come into salvation, He says, I've covered it all. I've wiped it all away, my child. But moving forward... You have an accountability that you're going to have to give to that. And so he talks about this. He says the high priest goes in there, which Jesus is our high priest. Hebrews makes that clear. In verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age. He says as long as the first section is still standing, as long as that first section is still intact, The way into the second is not able to be. That's what he said. The Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. He says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. The idea is, he says, until that uh, the first section is done away until the first section essentially dies. We don't have access. We, we, we just don't. We don't have access. That holy place must die until the access into the second comes. And that's going to pay, that, he's going to explain this moving forward. And I know, stay with me on this, guys, because I know. That some of this you guys are, are probably listening to and you're like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm following you, but I'm not really following you. I'll just tell you, some of this requires a knowledge of the law. It, it, it doesn't fully require that to kind of understand in principle what he's talking about here. But in order to fully understand a lot of this, you kind of have to know the law. You have to go through Leviticus and study what was the requirements of the priesthood? What was their duties? What was it that they were supposed to do when they came into the temple? But even more than that, you've got to understand and have spiritual eyes of what those things all represented. And then you've got to put that in the pieces of what he goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 9 about what the covenant, the second covenant of its establishment of what it did for the first covenant. Listen to what he goes on to say. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, 
Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He says, I'm not talking about the physical tent. I'm not talking about the physical tabernacle that was set up. Those things were things that just simply pointed to the greater gift, to the greater priesthood, to the greater Jerusalem, to the greater kingdom that we serve. They were a copy of what now has been spiritually revealed through Christ. And he says... He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. What does this mean? It means that the second covenant that God established with Christ and his people, the church, it did not take effect. It didn't start ticking. That clock did not start until Jesus died. And as long as the first was standing, the second could not be established. He says, as long as Christ was alive, as long as there was life that was there and the blood had not been shed, the second could not be established. That's really all that's being stated here, is that the first covenant could not become obsolete until the death occurred that redeemed that first covenant in order to establish the second. I've said the same thing about marriage. There's all kinds of talk about marriage and and divorce and remarriage and is it biblical to get divorced? And I'm just going to tell you straight up, it ain't biblical for any reason to get a divorce. And I'm well aware of Matthew Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. Well aware of those. I'm very aware of 1 Corinthians 7. We're actually studying it right now in our men's Bible study. Jesus in Matthew 5 and 19 was clarifying under the law of Moses... What entitled for a divorce according to Moses? You go to Mark 10, you're going to find the same exact concept. He was not establishing anything of the new covenant in order what is to be. That was established in Romans chapter 7, 1 through 3, and 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11, as going on into 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but only if he dies can she be remarried. A covenant in which is identified between a man and a woman in the beginning. God created it to be until death does them part. Only Moses allowed them to do it because of their hardness of heart. Go read it. God never actually decreed for a person to get divorced. Deuteronomy chapter 22 and 24. You can go read it. God never decreed and said, hey guys, here's, you can get a divorce now. He said, if you find yourself in this situation, here's how you need to handle it. Moses allow them to write a certificate of divorce. But in the beginning, as Mark 10 says, that wasn't God's will. God never established divorce. And so why do I bring that up? I bring it up because the only thing that can annul a covenant in Christ is death. That's the only thing. The only thing that can annul a man and a woman from being together in covenant is a death in order for them to then be free to marry another. That is what 1 Corinthians 7.39 says. And in the same way, the only way for the first covenant to be annulled, to be abolished or terminated, if you will, as as Romans 10.3 says, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to him who believes. Or in Ephesians 2, he talks about that Christ by his blood has now made peace between Jew and Gentile by abolishing the law of commandments expressed through ordinances. You can even go to Romans 7, going in through 4 through 8, I believe is what it talks about. Same exact concept. A death has to occur in order for the second to be established. And it's the same way with marriage. 
Until a spouse dies, you are in covenant with them. I don't care if they cheated on you. I don't care if they're abusive. And it's like, man, you're being really harsh. I'm not. God's word is. You can blame him. First Peter 3 says it. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word when they see the respectful and pure conduct of their wives. He says, even if your husband's not doing what he's supposed to. And go back and read First Peter chapter 2 in which he's talking about suffering unjustly. When he's talking about being threatened, don't threaten in return. When he's talking about suffering, you continue to entrust yourself to him who judges justly. I'm not saying that there's not things that can be done in which you bring elders of a church into the situation or whatever it might be. The reality is, there is no reason for a divorce because the only thing that annuls a marriage covenant is death. And in the same way, the quote-unquote marriage that God made with his people in the first covenant at Mount Sinai, the only thing that could annul that was death. And that's what we're going to find out moving forward. He says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, which they did under the law, it says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. He says, we are all sinners. Every single one of us. No one is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You have been born into this world and every single person before they came to know Christ was guilty under the law of Moses. Every single person save one. Jesus Christ. And he says, but through him and his perfect sacrifice, because of his death, he has now redeemed you from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, under the law. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. That word for will is diatheke. It means promise, contract, covenant. Throw any of those words in there and that's what it means. But here he's talking about, he says, when a will is drafted up, he says, that will does not take effect until the one who drafted it happens. Until they die, the will does not start taking an effect. The covenant does not start taking an effect. The contract does not take effect. And so in this capacity, he's saying, look, Jesus was there in the beginning. All things were made for him and through him, right? This is what Colossians 1 talks about. And so the first covenant, Jesus was there. He was with God, right? He was there. He, by him, it was written. And so all these things took place. And until Jesus came and died... That covenant was not annulled. But once he died, a death occurred that redeems us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant so that we could belong to a new one. 
And he says in verse 17, For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I really hope you're seeing this picture. Because I I don't know how to paint it any more clear for you in what he's talking about here. When Christ died, the first covenant was annulled. So that we could belong to another, to Christ. This concept is not hard to understand. And yet for some reason in the church today, we... We have a hard time understanding it. This is part of the reason that when I teach about divorce and I teach about remarriage in which there's no circumstance in the new covenant in which we can get remarried. In fact, even 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11 says that a wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. He's saying, look, if you're going to go against my wise counsel as a command from God. He says, if you're going to go against this counsel and you're going to go ahead and separate from your husband, whatever your reason might be, he says, then I'm going to tell you what, you are going to remain in that condition if you're going to do that or you will be reconciled to your husband. You have no other option. Remarriage is not permitted outside of widowhood. And the reason that I say that is because when we teach the gospel, we have to teach accurately the covenant that we have with God through Jesus Christ. And as such, if the covenant that we have between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, must reflect the covenant we have with God through Christ, then it must reflect it perfectly. That only death annuls the covenant. That's the only thing. But we know that Christ won't die again, so that leaves the option as only we could possibly die again, depending on what your viewpoint is of that. Now, I would look at James chapter 1, 13 through 15, when it says that God cannot be tempted by evil, but each person is tempted and lured by his own desire, and his desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death, which is the Greek word thanatos. Now, I would say that a person who's an unbeliever is already trapped in their sin. They're already dead in their trespasses. So they can't bring forth death because they're already dead. So the only person that James could be alluding to here is a person who has been born again. A person who has now found life in Christ. The only way that you can give birth to sin and then even bring forth death is if you found life in Christ. Therefore, I believe that apostasy is a very real thing. Go go research or go um, listen to Hebrews chapter 6 in our podcast that we did on that one. I do hold that apostasy, a spiritual death, is the only thing that can separate us in covenant. And in the same way in the physical covenant between a man and a woman, a physical death is the only thing that can separate the covenant that's been made. And so it goes on in verse 23. Before I get too far onto that, I have talked at length about that in chapter 2 uh, podcast and in chapter 6 podcast. Um, and I will talk a little bit about it in chapter 10 podcast as we're going to get into that one very shortly. But the concept is, is that the, the covenant that we have with God in Christ must 
be paralleled to the covenant that we have as a man and a woman, as husband and wife. And so a death is the only thing that can separate. That's the only thing that allows us to go to a new. So that first covenant, the one who wrote it, must die. It's very simple. The one who wrote it must die in order for the second to be established. And when the second becomes established, the first is obsolete. It's no more. And so all this, this, this ideology that's being formed in the church today of, of the Hebrew roots movement of going back to the law, of going back to find, you know, a, a live by the law, it's heresy. It's heresy in its fullest form because that covenant has been made obsolete. It really is a slap in the face. And this is what Galatians is all about. Um, let me go back and read it because in Galatians, I think it's in chapter 2, he says it. Where he says in 21, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, meaning the law of Moses, then Christ died for no purpose. It really is a slap in the face of Christ to say that you're going to go back to the law. As if that was the standard that we should live by. When it's not. And so, uh, before I get more into that one, listen to what he says in 23, going into the end of this, which kind of summarizes what he's talking about. He says, Thus it was necessary for the copies or the shadows of those things, of the heavenly things, to be purified with these rites, meaning by blood. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Christ didn't enter in to the temple to go offer sacrifices. Christ didn't go burn incense in the temple. Christ didn't go in there to go bake some bread and put it for the priesthood. Christ didn't go behind the curtain to go into the, the, the most holy place where the Shekinah glory of God was. Because he was those things. Christ went into heaven. The spiritual reality of the physical copies. And because he went into heaven as our high priest. He says, we as that royal priesthood who serve at the altar. Giving spiritual sacrifices unto God that are acceptable through Jesus Christ. We now have a different kingdom, a different temple, things that aren't made with human hands that we serve at. This is where he talks about in Hebrews chapter 12 of what we've actually come to, a heavenly Jerusalem, a kingdom that can't be shaken. So don't go back and try to establish physical regulations, the copies or the, the shadows of the things that have now come in Christ. It's a slap in the face to him. He says... Nor, in 25, was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is the concept that's even in Hebrews chapter 6. And it even goes back into Moses striking the rock twice. Only once was that rock supposed to be struck. It would not be struck a second time. But Moses struck it twice, and as such, he wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. And that's why Hebrews 6 says, um, in this one, let me read it, 
so I don't misquote it, right after he talks about the warning of apostasy, he says in verse 6, And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucified once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. He says if you're going to apostatize, essentially what you're doing is you're striking the rock twice. The rock was struck, struck once for you at God's command. It will not be struck twice. And that's exactly what apostasy does. And so he says, He came once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And listen to this very carefully. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, he says it's going to come time for judgment. Now, I could go into um, eschatology on this one and show you that this is actually a proof text to say that the pre-tribulation rapture um, is actually not um, uh, good and sound doctrine. Because this says that just as it's appointed for man to, to die and then come judgment, so it is with Christ who came and he died. And the next time that he comes, it's going to be to judge, not not to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, because he says the parallel is just as it was appointed for man to die once and then came judgment, so it is with Christ, who died once, and the next time that he comes is going to be for judgment. I don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. And I could go through my discourse on that one, you know, whatever it is that you might believe, we'll find out one day. But what I do see is in Revelation chapter 20, and I'll, I'll end it with this. I wasn't even going to go here, but um, throw, it out, throw you guys a bone to study. In Revelation chapter 20, it says that after the seven-year tribulation, which if you don't know anything about that one, just get in the Word, study it. Um, you'll, you'll see what it is and, and you know look for it. But the seven-year tribulation, it says, After the seven-year tribulation, those who, were, who did not receive the mark of the beast or were beheaded for the cause of Christ. It says, They will come to life and they will reign with Christ for a thousand years. He says this is the first resurrection. Now you could go back in the Thessalonians. Both first and second. And you could find some teaching about how the sound of a trumpet. Christ is going to come. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, those who are alive will be caught up with him. And then the dead in Christ will rise. And they will go be with him forever. Right? When the dead in Christ rise. That's called a resurrection. So let me just ask you this question. Despite what Hebrews 9 says at the end, that judgment's going to come the second time that Christ comes, not, not just a rapture where he's going to bring everybody back or whatever. It's going to be, he's going to come with a rod of iron and he's going to bring judgment. How can the first resurrection clearly in Revelation 20 take place after the tribulation if the first one before the tribulation had already taken place? Just think about that. If the first resurrection doesn't take place until after the seven-year tribulation, how was there one that preceded it? The reality is, is if the first resurrection takes place after the tribulation, that means that there is no resurrection that takes place before it. Therefore, what 2 Thessalonians is talking about in chapter 1 and 2, he's talking about towards the end. When he says that death and Hades gave up those who were in it, the sea gave up all those who were in it, and they all came and stood before the judgment seat of God. Now, 
That's not going to be my topic. I don't get into arguments about that one. I'll talk about it, but I don't, you know, whether I'm right on that or not is inconsequential. The reality is we'll find out one day. The point of this passage in Hebrews chapter 9 is to get the the reader, to get you and I to understand that the things that were of old in that first covenant... There was regulations, there was a law, there was things that even we have today. We have a law, it's just the law of Christ, it's not the law of God that we're under. And I, I could sit and try to explain that to you, but the reality is, is in John 15, Jesus says that if you, if you obey my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I obeyed my Father's commandments and remain in His love. He says those are two distinct things. They're not one and the same. The reality is we are under a law of Christ. And if you want to get uh, nitty gritty on needing a proof text for what it is, I talked about it in 1 John chapter 5, I'm sorry, chapter 3 and verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. He says very clearly, this is the commandment. Believe in his son. And do what he tells you to by loving one another. That's why Jesus says in John 13, 34 through 35, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. By this the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's what it all comes through. And so the reality is, is that the old has been terminated. It has been annulled when Christ came. For those who come into Christ. It's still in full effect for those who aren't in Christ. You will be judged according to the law of God. The law of Moses. You will be judged according to that. The only way to not be judged according to that and be redeemed from the transgressions that you've committed under that one is to come into Christ. That's the only possible way. God has made an access point for us to be redeemed from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, the law of Moses, and then come into the law of Christ in the second covenant because now a death has occurred that redeems us from that and gives us an access point to come into Him. Now, very Very quickly, I want to say this. This is why I don't consider the Gospels as New Testament. Because testament is the Greek word diatheke, as I've already brought up. It means the New Covenant. You look at the Old Covenant and you look at New Covenant. The Gospels were of Jesus' life. And it wasn't until His death that the New Covenant started. So much of what Jesus talked about and did was still under the Old Covenant covenant. That's why when you look at Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, you've got to wrap your mind around the fact that Jesus isn't establishing new covenant doctrine or theology. He is clarifying to the people what had been misconstrued to them by the the leaders and rulers of the law. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the people who are supposed to be teaching them the law. He was clarifying what was under the law. He wasn't establishing what is to be under Christ. That comes from the apostles' teaching. So understanding that Jesus, during his life, that the new covenant had not been established yet, is paramount to oftentimes understanding the teachings of Christ and of the apostles, of how they don't contradict. It's very clear in what Paul says. There is no way around it. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but only if he dies is she free to be remarried. Paraphrased. Just go look it up. 
And so the reality is that even the gospel accounts, even though your, your Bible might have a little page right before Matthew chapter 1 that says the New Testament, it's not. The new covenant or testament or will or promise or contract did not start until after Jesus died. That's paramount to understanding many of Jesus' teachings. So, we're going to proceed into chapter 10. Um, I actually might do that right now. I think I might have enough time to try to get that one in there. Uh, And so, we're going to go into chapter 10. Stay with me. He kind of keeps on with this theme of what he's talking about, how we're no longer under the law of Moses. We're no longer under this physical, physical covenant. We have now been ushered into the spiritual covenant, and we're now under the law of Christ in this new covenant that he's given to us through the blood of Jesus Christ that has secured an eternal redemption through him for the people that would come into him. And then he's going to even enforce that even more in these next roughly about 18 verses in chapter 10. And then we're going to get into um, the rest of it in which he has a pretty pretty uh, large dagger that's going to stick into the heart of much of today's common theology. And um, at least that I'm aware of. So y'all be blessed and um, keep studying the word. All right.